Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hey, everybody, it's your old pal, Bat Dave. That's right, New Jersey Bat Dave, alias David Deventer, with The Marvelous, featuring Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. Does this sound funny? It is. I'm Eddie Wilson, riding solo, not exactly, but inserting a long-awaited, question mark, installment of the feature I like to do at the end of episodes, or in addition to regularly scheduled episodes, because Peter Melnick is MIA. I think it's a work thing. It's the Cosplay Connection feature. And for a change of pace, and again, since it's been a while, I want to introduce on the phone a guy that I've seen not only on Facebook, but in person at shows. Garden State Comic Fest comes to mind right away. You may know him as New Jersey Bad Dave. It's David DeVenter. Hi, Eddie. How you doing? Glad to be here socially distancing as well, uh, kind of thing. But that's what we have to do. So while we're in this mid-May continuing pandemic stuff, what I think really got me interested more so was we met, I think, for the first time at the Garden State Comic Fest last uh, year in 2019. You were Scott Summers, Cyclops. And I think it's not even a question that whatever character I have seen you in there or possibly another show, but more so on Facebook, you, I got to say, are so into and I think so damn accurate with your portrayals, taking on the character, the persona, from the attire down to the uh, mannerisms, and, uh, and it's just because you love what you do. Yes, thank you. It, it's actually all one big happy accident because <laughs> I just grew up immersed in pop culture, just loved it since the day I was born, and about... Ten years ago, it just started happening. I went to, I would go to conventions as you would, and I see grown men and women dressed up as their favorite superheroes, their favorite monsters, and I'm like, I'm nudging my buddy. I'm, I'm like, look at, look at these people. What's going on? You know. And then I did it once, and like they always say, you do it once. I was addicted. So I'm up to about sixty different characters now across the whole spectrum of pop culture, and it's been a lot of fun. That's six zero, correct? Yes. Not 16. Okay. That, that, that is quite a bit. I can't remember the one of the more recent ones that I saw, again, on Facebook, but I think the one that sent me over the top and said, I got to call, I got to get a hold of Dave, is your Monkey Man character. Ah, uh, yes. There's a reason behind it. There's a method to my madness. And when I'm going to become a character, it's more of a tribute to a guest that's going to be appearing at an upcoming show. Mm-hmm. And I've loved the monkeys. I knew the monkeys before the Beatles, because the monkeys were, was a big hit in the 60s. But as a child of the 70s, I saw them on Saturday morning reruns of the original show. Oh, the monkeys, they were the best. And then I got into the Beatles, the Stones, and that afterwards. But I saw at an upcoming show two years ago, almost two years ago to the day, uh, Mickey Dolenz was appearing at a show, East Coast Comic Con, in Secaucus, and uh, my buddy, Brooklyn John, Brooklyn John owns a fleet of star cars, real, actual, drivable Hollywood TV star cars. And he was appearing at the show with Mickey Dolenz at Mickey's table with the monkey mobile that Brooklyn John owns. So I called John. I said, John, because I never tell people, I go, I got something special for you and Mickey. 
And I just, it took me a couple of hours. It, it, the Monkey Man costume, for people that don't recall the Monkey Man, the monkeys appeared as superheroes in three or four episodes of the original run. Yeah. And it was a lampoon of the Batman TV show. And the four Monkey Men, they were superheroes on, on those episodes. And that was the costume I created. Most of the time, I try to do it just from scratch. Take an old pair of pajamas, go to a thrift store, find something at the yard sale, and uh, went to as Monkey Man. And it was a, a huge hit for people that remembered Monkey Man. Well, the thing is, when I saw the picture, I said, oh, my God, I remember that, you know. And who would have thought to di- that's a, I guess you could call it a deep cut costume, something that you don't see anymore. And then there's been other things that I'm, I've been so impressed with personally, and that was, of course, when you met Lee Majors and you were the $6 million man in the red jumpsuit, which I have one of those with the piping down the arms and stuff, but not with the actual patch, which looks like it came from, because I was in the $6 million man fan club, but that was pretty right. much spot on, so people could know right away, I know who you are. And in my case, not having a patch, I had a lanyard with you know, the opening credit scene, $6 million man face, and so if they looked at my name badge, whatever, they'd say, oh, okay, you're, yeah. But that was really, really a good representation of, of that character. But I think you're with a picture with, like, say, Barbara Feldon, and I think you were a um, Get Smart character. Oh, well, I'll tell you that. But let me back up to Lee Majors. If you're yeah. of a certain age, and we were fortunate. I was a child of the 70s. But back in the 70s, you had only six or seven TV channels. Yeah. And we had great New York affiliates. They were constantly rerunning shows from the 50s and 60s, even though it was the mid-70s. So as a kid, you cannot differentiate between 50s, 60s, 70s, somewhere in black and white. Okay, I get it. But you are just absorbing all of this pop culture simultaneously. So you're getting I Dream of Genie, and you're getting Starsky and Hutch. So Lee Majors, the uh, bionic man, uh, Steve Austin, that show was, that's top ten for kids of our generation. I mean, Lee Majors was like a god back then. Yep. But even though I'm most identified with Batman, all my Batman projects that I've done over the years, I love Get Smart. Get Smart was is still to this day my favorite 30-minute TV show because it's action, it's adventure, it's espionage, it's comedy, it's romance. People actually died in Get Smart. You know, you don't see that in other sitcoms. There was an element of danger to it. Don Adams, who played Maxwell Smart, comedy genius. There's really only two primary uh, actors left from the Get Smart series, which went off the air in 1970. One being Barbara Feldon, who was one of my dream girls growing up, yeah. age 99, and then Bernie Coppell. Most people remember Bernie Coppell better as Doc, the horny doctor from The Love Boat. But he was also Siegfried. He played Siegfried Evil, the leader of chaos, which was, you know, the anti-hero to Maxwell Smart's control agents. Correct. And uh, I met them both, and one was as Siegfried, the villain of Siegfried dressed us out to meet Bernie Coppell, and the other to meet Barbara Feldon a year and a half ago. Robert Wagner was in the next room with his wife, Jill St. John, and his TV wife, which was Stephanie Powers. So I went to that show dressed as number two. He was number two in the Austin Powers movies. There was Dr. Evil, and, and Robert Wagner played number two. So it was just a nice mashup of the two spy series. And Barbara Feldon is in her mid-'80s. She's about as lovely and sweet and beautiful as you'd hope she would be as, as a kid. Sure, so, and uh, I would say, yes, growing up in the 70s also, being exposed to all these different shows, and you know what? It was black and white, it was color, whatever. It was just something that was a part of what we, again, came about. And then to have it now 
kind of full circle in the fact that we can immerse ourselves back into it and go to these shows. And it's okay to act out, if you will, a character. I think when you do it, you seem to go both barrels head on and you you nail it. Well, thank you. The greatest compliment I've ever gotten is when people don't recognize me at a show. I'll have people come up to me a week later, a couple of days later, and they're like, I'll post the photos, I'll do my photos, and you know, hey, here's this thing, we met this actor, and this and that, and, we, and I have, I'll mention names later, we have a nice, small, tight group of people that we do shows, we have the Hollywood star car guys, we have fellow costumers, we have you know, artists, and this and that, but people come up to me and they go, dude, I was talking to you for like a half hour at the show, dressed as Chuck Norris, to meet Chuck Norris, I became Chuck Norris, or someone else, and they go, I didn't know that was you, so it's a very personal experience, because I love these people growing up. And I see them, they're leaving us in a very, very unfortunate manner. They're old. You know, they're in their 80s, some are approaching 90. And I just, about 10 years ago, I said to myself, i got to meet these people in my own fashion. And, and that's where this all grew out of. And it is great that can happen, that can be there. These actors and actresses are availing themselves to that. I mean, yes, it comes with a price, but it's what the, the trade-off is. And I imagine, of course, you're getting pictures and you're getting autographs, so you must have quite the memorabilia collection. Yeah, it's a real... And we did the fan films. Dennis Pelicano and I, we have 87 official NJ Bat Squad. There's a little plug. Our, our YouTube channel is NJ Bat Squad, uh, all one word. And we have 87 official ones. And then got to a point about two years ago, it was just the overhead was just crushing us. You know, his wife was complaining, my girlfriend's complaining. And so we just started doing raw content. Or we'll just do photo albums or what. But of the 87, we have over a million combined views, which, you know, is respectable. If it only had, you know, 10,000, 20,000 views, I'm doing something wrong. But there's so much heart in it. And we have so many people that have contributed to uh, making these fan films memorable. They're souvenirs is what they are. Yeah. So, Do you recall, Dave, going back to the beginning of when you first became aware of, and we'll get out of the out of the pop culture and go into the comics aspect for a little bit, you know, your first love of comic books and that stuff? Yes, and thank you for having me on The Marvelous, because obviously I'm more known for my DC characters, but I've done a lot of Marvel characters. I've done three different versions of Nick Fury, you know, classic Nick Fury, mm. to meet Jim Steranko. Steranko, you know, he's not, he's a great guy, but he's not overly friendly with you unless you're a beautiful woman. So the first time I did it, everyone's telling me, Dave, Steranko's tough. He's not going to be, you know, goo-goo gaga over this. He sees me, he lights up like I'm his long-lost friend. He grabs me by the arm, a handshake, almost pulls me over his table. And he's like, Nick, how you doing, buddy? How you doing, Nick? So that's the kind of stuff that you live for. But growing up, my first comic books were all hand-me-downs from older cousins, and they were all Batman. And they were all from the early 70s when Neil Adams dominated comic books. So now I'm watching Batman at night, it's reruns, I didn't know, and I'm watching Adam West, and it's silly, but still scary as a kid. You don't know how tongue-in-cheek it is until you're older. Mm. But then all of a sudden I'm, I'm getting these comic books with Neil Adams, Batman's a dark, grim creature of the night, and back then a lot of that, his adventures were supernatural, and uh, I was just instantly hooked. So I grew up at a great time where Batman was just everywhere. Well, you really then, you're selling, you're growing up and being exposed to two different personalities, personas of, of Batman, one in the comics and one, of course, on the TV, which would only go so far because it wanted to appeal to a certain audience. And again, you don't know, you know, that you're, like you said, watching reruns, but it's stuff that you remember. If you don't remember anything else, you knew when you were in a villain's lair because of the diagonal view of the room, of the scene. That's right. 
And that was yep. and between that and of course climbing up the wall with the cape having hanging the capes hanging perfectly vertically down. Yeah. Yeah, and then something like that, man. As a kid, you don't get the line where you. Robin's pushed over the side. I don't know if it was Penguin. So Supervillain pushes Robin over the side. He's all bound. And he catches Batman's batarang in his teeth and lowers himself safely to the ground. And Batman says something like, never underestimate the importance of good dental health or something like that. It's just, it's just so ludicrous. And, and that was a big part of why the show tanked almost overnight. By the third season, they introduced Batgirl. And this show is just running on fumes at that point. So, you know, it happened. I want to try, I'm looking through the characters, and I don't know how many times you've circulated through the characters that you've been, but again, it depends on who you're going out to meet. But are there any ones that you want to highlight or think you think are favorites, or maybe one or two that were very difficult to um, to get through, work through, put together, et cetera? I'll, I'll tell you what. The ones that people always seem to identify with, and, and it, it drives me crazy, and I'm sure this happens in, in many endeavors. The costume tributes, where I really put my heart into it, and I take longer than I should, and there's this big, grand concept, they fall flat. <laughs> it's nothing. No one cares. We went, my buddy and I, he's portly. He, he's a heavy set guy, David J. I love him. Five years ago, I think, we, just as a joke, we went to New York Comic Con. So everyone at New York Comic Con, they're building themselves into robots and giant monsters and, and you know, superhero groups. And they're just swinging for the fences. And we go as Gilligan and the Skipper. Mm-hmm. And everyone lost it. With CNN had us featured as their thumbnail for the show. It's, it's just like two years ago, I went as the Riddler, and I tried never to buy the stuff. I'd rather make it, not, not to be, oh, I'm a, I'm a master craftsman, because there are master craftsmen. These guys, they make their weapons, they make their armor, they make their helmets, they make their guns. I'm more of like, you know, like I said, go to the thrift store, find this, do this. I went two years ago as the Riddler, but because I put that Frank Gorshin energy into it, the posing and the, 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 just the maniacal side of it, I was on the PMZ's website for the whole week as, as the thumbnail for New York Comic Con. And in, in nerd world, that's like hitting the lottery because you're there with 50,000 other people that have truly exquisite, beautiful costumes, and here I am. So it's like I almost feel guilty about it, but I don't. So the ones that I'm remembered for and people always want me to do are really kind of like the silly, lighthearted ones. You mentioned Monkey Man to meet the, the monkeys. Gilligan, like I said, Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris loved it. And that's, you always want a, a reaction. Of the 60 or so costumes, every now and then you'll get a celebrity. Maybe you catch him on a bad day. But for the most part, they enjoy it. You know, that I think at this point in their career, they're doing shows they're being paid to meet fans. If they're smart, they're going to smile and em- embrace what you're doing. Cosmo Kramer. Did you ever see my Cosmo Kramer? No, I'm looking at several. I was gonna, I'm going to ask you about another uh, one in a minute. Cosmo Kramer. I would love to meet Michael Richards. A lot of these people, they don't do the shows for a variety of reasons. Mm. But John O'Hurley, a funny story about talking about how celebrities get it or don't get it. When you meet a celebrity and it's their first show ever, and it'll, it'll usually say that, their first convention appearance ever or whatever, it was John O'Hurley who played Elaine's boss on Seinfeld. He was Mr. Peterman, you know, the pompous boss with the silver hair. I'm meeting John O'Hurley. It's his first show ever. So he doesn't have a background as to what he's going to expect to see at a show. I come up as Cosmo Kramer, as Dr. Van Nordstrom. And I got the thing wrapped around my neck, like, and the pipe, the smoking jacket, my hair's teased out. I have, even have the ass man. I crossed it up with the ass man license plate. John O'Hurley doesn't know what to make of me. <laughs> so his handler leans in, and I overheard him. He goes, he goes, 
he's, he's here to meet you, and he's going to give you money. And instantly the light bulb goes on, and now he just sounds, looks, and acts like Mr. Peterman. Just a funny story. Happened in New York City, so I'm walking around midtown Manhattan where Seinfeld was filmed as Cosmo Kramer. And people are just, uh, streets of New York, hey, ass man, yo, Cosmo. So, uh, yeah, it's fun. Well, it's it's true what they say. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So if they get it and they appreciate it, the character that I haven't seen yet, and I don't know when it was, but it looks like you met Stan Lee as Johnny Storm. Yes, that was nice. It was right before Stan. Um, there was a point at the end where Stan Lee should have not been on the circuit. You know, we won't get into that. But a lot of these people, sometimes you see them. It's their last show. I've seen artists, uh, Herb Trimpey, fantastic artist for Marvel. He, he yep. pretty much made Hulk the character it was mm-hmm. in the late 60s, early 70s. And we saw him and, and at a show, and the next day he was gone. But uh, Stan Lee was still great, but we had to wait two and a half hours to meet this man who at this point is already like 92 years old. But it's Stan Lee, and it was me, two buddies, and a niece. So we've got the Fantastic Four lineup, three men and a woman. We all have our matching Fantastic Four shirts on. We go in there. Stan Lee doesn't give us an Excelsior. He sees the four of us. I go... We love you. We are your Fantastic Four today. And he just says, excellent. They take the picture, and you move on. So there are degrees of other shows. You're actually hanging out with the guests. You might even go out and have a cup of coffee with them. But something like Stan Lee towards the end, you were just in and out, in and out. Yeah, that happened to me, too, when it was in uh, in New York City. And at that point, I think it was called, it was the what would turn into the Big Apple Comic Con, was the New York Comic Book Marketplace. And he was only 89 then. And... For about two and a half seconds, myself and uh, it's my wife's cousin's husband, actually, so I'll call him my cousin-in-law, Larry, got into the picture real quick. I'm I'm saying if it was three seconds, that was all about it it was. And the good part is that the picture is taken as Stan and I are shaking hands. I am in a a version of Reed Richards, and that was, like, the best. It is. It's funny because we don't really know these people, but we feel like we do. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're a TV star, we let them into our homes via the TV as a little kid. If they're artists, like George Perez. George Perez is a god. He's the nicest guy. George Perez is this amazing artist because you've read his comics. He was the Avengers. He was the Teen Titans and and all this stuff. It's like a cult to George, and he deserves it. He's a nice guy, an incredible talent, and he, he somehow makes time for everyone. I've seen some of these artists sign 40, 50 books at a time, and uh, after like 10 books, my hand will be seizing up, you know, cramp. Getting back to a childhood hero, I cannot tell you how glad I was that I finally got to meet Captain James Tiberius Kirk Mm. several times in very real fashion. I also do entertainment journalism. I do photography. I do event photography. There was a time when, a couple years ago, William Shatner was doing his one-man play. It was his life story, Shatner's World, it was called, and he was appearing locally, and my editor set up a phone interview. I was nervous as hell. And William Shatner was my very first celebrity phone interview. And it was 15 or 20 minutes, and he was exactly how you would want William Shatner to be. Just that charming, funny, storytelling guy. And it was great. And then I did a follow-up interview, and I've done a couple photo ops, and I've featured uh, his one-man show in our county edition. So I, I always have to say, it's always nice to meet these people. And then he actually sent me an autographed uh my story. I sent him a story. I said, thank you so much. It meant the world to me. And he sent it back autographed. <laughs> no charge. And that's great. And that's the kind of stuff that a fan never forgets. Yeah, and that you didn't expect. And again, you, you definitely remember the first one that you encounter or deal with, good, bad, or otherwise. 
Yes. I regret kicking myself because I have friends my age and older. They used to go to shows all the time. You could run into Stan Lee at the urinal. You know, Comic-Cons and nostalgia shows, it was basically just dudes. Now you go to a show, it's 60% young women. Mm -hmm. And, And these girls, they know their costumes, they know their artists. They're just totally immersed in it. But 30 years ago or so, it was strictly the world of nerds. I mean, do you remember a department store named Two Guys? Yeah. Two Guys for people in other areas. It's like how Bradley's was, Caldor. You know, it would be like Lowe's is today, Walmart. Leonard Nimoy used to just go to the, show up at toy aisles. In the mid-'70s, it was that dark year they all had, the, the dark decade the original Star Trek cast had between the original series ending in 69 and the motion picture starting in 79. Those guys all had to scramble for work. So they would take any gig they could get. So I did miss those shows in the 70s and 80s where everyone was much more accessible. I'm looking, Dave, again now at your list of characters. Which one were you when you met Michael Beck from The Warriors? Well, we did two fan films. They did in Coney Island, right, where they filmed a lot of the movie. The Warriors came out in 79, and they had a 35th anniversary reunion with most of the cast in 2015, and went the following year, 2016. 2015, I was going to go as Swan, mm-hmm. but I had a blonde wig, and it wouldn't stay on my head, and it was about 97 degrees that day in Coney Island, Brooklyn, and people were looking at me funny walking around, and, it, you know, your chest is wide open, you got this vest on and a blonde wig. It wasn't going to end well for me, so I threw that in the car. The next year, I went back as Cowboy. One of the Warriors, he's got the baseball bat and the cowboy hat, and we did two fan films. And those, I love Warriors fans. Those are our two biggest, most liked, most shared, most positively reviewed fan films of the 87 we've done, the two Warrior one. And uh, Michael Beck and all those guys, they are stand-up fellas, all of them. I, I have nothing bad to say about them. I think uh, it goes without saying, if you are a frequenter of these shows, that inevitably, whether it is a comic book convention or a chiller theater in Parsippany, New Jersey, you find a Warriors component. And even if none of the celebrities from that movie are there, you're still going to find people dressed as some with that cut-off leather jacket. And also a couple of the ladies in there. I believe I met, and I can't remember her first name, she was from the uh, the girl gang, the Lizzies, and that uh-huh. was that Framingham show last November, Super Mega Fest. But I think even yes. before that, when I first became aware of, of the shows and going to them, and Michael Beck was there, I think, with Deborah Van Valkenburg. Yes. That's right. As well, yeah. So it's yep. amazing and how this movie has just taken off so much. It me and it drew to me, it appealed to me because in the opening when all the gangs are getting together and the warriors are taking the train, I've probably said it before on our previous episode of the podcast, but you see the map where the stops are and they get to the last supposedly they get to the last stop and I notice Dyer Avenue. I think it's the number 4 train. I lived a block away from there and I so I knew exactly where that was. Right, yeah, and even something as basic as just going on the Wonder Wheel. The movie kept showing the Wonder Wheel, and so we went up on it, and it happened to be the windiest. Or actually, even though it was like 97 degrees that day, a freakish sandstorm blew in off the beach. And we're on the top cart in the Wonder Wheel, and this thing's rocking. It's actually in the fan film, and you kind of see me and my buddy, we're getting a little scared, because this thing's like 100 years old, and it's huge. But I always told people, I said, especially Dennis, Pelicano, my cohort in all these videos, he'd always say in the morning, he's a real Virgo like me, but I'm a little looser. He goes, what are we going to film today? Who are we going to meet? 
I said, I have no idea. We're just going to go out there, and we're going to have an adventure, and we capture what we capture. So, and we got better. The early ones, the first 20 or 30 fan films was just too gratuitous. They were like 37 minutes long, 43 minutes long. We got to the final two dozen. We had these fan films down under eight minutes. And you're just like, boom, there's this famous person. Boom, there's that artist. Boom, you know, and they're souvenirs. And that's all I ever wanted. I never got into this. If you get into making fan films or cosplay for the money or for the glory, fine, that's you. I just wanted to have some good memories, and I do. So You absolutely do, yeah. started talking about different venues and shows. What extent and how far have you gone to different shows in states and towns or whatever? Well, early on, we were going to do them all because, you know, this is doing about 10 years, even though I was going to shows before that, but then actually including the costumes and the star cars. So we've kind of centralized it. We were doing as far south as uh, Maryland, you know, Baltimore, and we were kind of getting up into New England, but not Boston. But we're very happy now, content with just anything between New York City and Philadelphia. Because, you know, excepting right now in this year, because there's nothing going on, unfortunately. And any given weekend on another year, you've got two or three shows that you could pick from. There's an abundance of goodies when you live in between Philadelphia and New York City. And I always tell people, don't go in cold. I said, you have to research the show. Because I go, like I said, a lot of, most times I don't know who my costume tribute is going to be for until I see the list. And then someone like Bob Simone. if you ever see me as Gilligan or as the Green Hornet or as anyone else, and there's this six foot two, literally the physical re-embodiment of Adam West, mm-hmm. the Cape Crusader, that's my buddy Bob Simone. So Bob and I have been teaming up since like 2012, and there's two chiller theater shows. It used to be predominantly horror-based, but now it's drifting more into nostalgia. But I tell people that are new, look at who you want to see, budget it. You can't go and meet 10, 15 people. Maybe you can just get the autograph or a photo with two or three, and then you make the most of it. You know, it's more fun that way. Looking at, uh, Dave, some of your more recent stuff from last year, and I did recently see it on Facebook, your Tony Monero from Saturday Night Fever. I guess there was a reunion that came up. That's why you, that prompted that. Yes, it's funny because right after that show, John Travolta himself has been doing shows in 2019. It's a bit pricey, but, you know, it's John Travolta. But this was uh, for Chiller Theater uh, a year ago, and uh, I said, you know what? I'm a big John Travolta fan. He's from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. They have most of the cast members, not him, but a big chunk of the cast members from the original 1977 Saturday Night Fever. Let me go do it. So, you know, blackened my hair. You put the little, drew the little dimple in the chin. I got the white three-piece suit, the gold chains, the black shirt, the pout. I went there, and again, not patting myself on the back, it was like a reaction that, except for maybe Cosmo Kramer, it was a reaction like I never got. The guests who are there to make money, the guests were leaving their tables to take pictures with me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you live for that kind of stuff. It's fun, and when people respond to it positively, it's validating. It's been a really fun ride. A lot better reaction, I think, with people than if you were to try and do, I don't know, Vinnie Barbarino from Welcome Back Hotter or something. Yeah, you really, you don't want to be too much of a a niche or a niche, whatever the word is. You want to be enough of the person so that everyone's going to get it. I'll tell you, the only time that, that I went really deep and half the show got it and half the show didn't get it, but it was because of the age. I went for a horror show as Carl Kolchak, the Night Stalker. 
you know, Darren McGavin was in that supernatural sci-fi horror TV show. It only lasted one season after two TV movies. And it was pretty much Chris Carter, the executive producer of The X-Files. He said he created The X-Files out of his love of Kolchak, the Night Stalker, as a kid. So I went as Carl Kolchak. I got my sack. I made my own wooden stakes. I got my mallet. I'm going to kill some vampires at the show. I got my pork pie hat, my striped suit, and no one under the age of 40 knew who I was. Mm. They're like, they go, who are you, my grandfather? You know? <laughs> so, but everyone over the age of 40 got that it was Darren McGavin, Carl Kolchak. And so you risk it. You gamble it sometimes. But to me, it's worth it. I would have been somewhere on the fence with whether I would have recognized that or not because I hadn't seen the show, like you said, one season. It might have just been a little bit before my time. But I understand the feeling, having gone as an original character myself and just put together with some pretty much ordinary clothing, and that was the John Ritter character of Steve Nichols, a.k.a. Captain Avenger, in the movie oh, Hero at Large. And I think it was the second time that I'd been to Super Mega Fest that about a half a dozen people did recognize me, and I had to shake their hand <laughs> to thank them for knowing who I was. You know, that Hero at Large is a great movie. As a matter of fact, I'm probably going to watch that. I'm going to see if I can track it down on one of these... Uh streaming platforms. I did a Greatest American Hero. Yeah. I did that for William Cat. William Cat was the star of Greatest American Hero, early 1980s, one-hour silly drama about a guy who inherits a spacesuit from an alien race, but no directions, no manual. So he's got to kind of feel his way through being a superhero. So uh, when you get to a certain age, my wheelhouse is characters from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and a little further. But it's because what I grew up on, just the way cosplayers who are 21 years old, 25 years old, they're doing their own thing. And that's what's nice about it. It's a hobby, more than a hobby to some people, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, it should really just be about having fun and making some nice memories. It's, that's it. You're doing it for yourself, if nothing else. And uh, just a sub-note on the Hero at Large, I did get it a number of years ago on DVD. It might still be circulating. I think on that as well is the trailer, the voiceover by very well-famous known but now departed, Big Dan, Dan Ingram. Oh, that's great. I was a huge John Ritter fan. There were three actors that I felt could do anything, and they were just so damn likable growing up. One was John Ritter. The second was Bill Bixby, Bill Bixby from The Incredible Hulk mm -hmm. and The Courtship of Eddie's Father, and then Michael Landon, Michael Landon from Bonanza and then 20-plus years of Little House on the Prairie and Highway to Heaven. Mm. You have these certain actors, like we said earlier, you feel like they're part of the family. So uh, when they pass away, it's, it's tough. You really feel like you lost an uncle. Oh, yeah. Somebody that you knew enough on a level to, to have a, some kind of connection with. And, and you feel it. You feel the loss yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And early on with the fan films, Danny said about 12 fan films, and it was nothing but Batman-centric stuff. Mm. And Danny was a Marvel guy. Danny Spider-Man. Not a big Batman fan. He goes, Dave, he goes, I enjoy doing this, but we have to do more than Batman stuff. And he was right. We started doing Star Trek, Star Wars, horror shows, this and that. And it opened up the whole realm. We were just very, it was very claustrophobic. But early on, I'm glad I did do that because I met my extended Bat family. And I also met almost all the surviving actors at that point. We met Lee Merriweather several times. She cried in my arms. I was Batman. I was a Cape Crusader. Dozens of times it shows as, oh, we need a Cape Crusader, okay. And I show up and my buddy brings the car. She was so touched by the love that the fans still had for her. She was only Catwoman for two hours. She was Catwoman in the, in the summer of 66 motion picture because Julie Newmar was in France or Europe 
filming another movie, and Lee Merriweather stepped in. And there, there I am, holding her in my arms, and she's just breaking down, just like, as a fan, you just, your head wants to explode. But, you know, we met Burt Ward, Burt's great. Van Williams, Van Williams, a couple of years before he died, Van, Van was the Green Hornet. Adam West, several times. Adam's always good. Adam was much better towards the end. There was a whole reason behind that. But Adam West was a great guy. The last thing I said to Adam, 10 months before he died, he was at New York Comic Con, and he was promoting that new cartoon, Return of the Cape Crusader, or something like that, mm-hmm. where they were just voicing it again. And I somehow made my way in front of Adam, and I said, Adam, we love you. And that was, that's and 10 months later, you know, he, he always had a, a bad back, but he didn't. It was actually cancer. Okay. So uh, just mm-hmm. really wonderful memories. Yeah. I want to ask you about one more character, and we're going to move on a little bit. And that I see on this list from last year was uh, Logan and Cyclops. Yes. I do a lot. And this is a great way for me to insert my cosplay family. I have two families for all my projects, and the ones that are that people remember the most is because I surrounded myself with great people. It's certainly not about me. I am kind of a guy that cracks the whip. I'm like, we got to do this. We have to meet this person. We got to be here. So, despite my easygoing demeanor, sometimes I'm really can be a dictator. Mm-hmm. But the costuming people, when I did uh, Cyclops. And I did uh, Logan. Well, someone said Old Man Logan because I'm not young anymore. But uh, that was to team up with someone like Sasha Cooper. Sasha Cooper, when I'm Captain Kirk, she's my Uhura. She looks more like Uhura than Uhura does. Um, <laughs> when I do Batman projects, Bob Simone is involved. I say, Bob, you are the default Batman, and I'll switch to another character. Or someone like Monica Toulet. Monica does the best Supergirl on the East Coast, possibly the best Supergirl in America, and she sews and makes and creates her own costumes. Mm. Uh, when I need a robot, robots to appear in the videos, Mike Hemig. Mike Hemig lives in Pennsylvania. Kevin DiPosito, if I need a villain, Kevin does amazing. Kevin's just, for such a nice guy, Kevin plays evil very well, so that's kind of odd. Maria Ortiz, when we met Lyle Wagner, Steve Trevor, Maria dressed up as the Linda Carter version to meet him. And other people, Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson does the original 1972 Luke Cage. Remember Luke Cage, the comic book? Yellow shirt, black pants, this and that. Chain um, and chain for a yeah, belt. Yeah, and then finally, my foil. We've done a series of retired Wonder Woman versus whoever I am. We've done five or six, and my friend Donna Renee. Donna does the very, almost like a Catskill vaudeville type of retired Wonder Woman has let herself go. And she's cranky, and she's just a nasty old broad, and those are always a hit, and those are always fun. And a lot of times, uh, mostly unscripted, we're just winging it. You guys have done it so much that, uh, and I think I've seen her at least a couple of times too. And she's always in, and she's dressed it. She's in, she's staying in characters, no question. And I think you know, you know, you have to. Yes, Donna will do a show for six or seven hours, and even during a pee break, she's still retired Wonder Woman. I mean, it's the best way possible. It's almost psychotic, the attention to her character. People respond to it. They love it. Check out Retired Wonder Woman. She's just a real hoot. And just to back up, Mike Hemming, you mentioned, I'm like, oh, geez, I've seen so many of his builds. Not necessarily in person, but I think the only time I did see him in person, again, going back to the New York City one uh, right across from the garden, one of the most obscure, I think, Marvel ones, but a, a parody's character was Forbush Man. Yes. And- yeah, that was stunning. His daughter made that. And I actually got to wear it by the following show because he was doing a robot. And I said, Mike, do you mind? I said, I want to do a funny bit where Forbish Man gets chased around the show. And for anyone under the age of 50, 
Forbush man was the, the Marvel version of almost like Alfred E. Newman. He was just this schmuck of a guy in red pajamas, a giant F on his chest, and a pot, a cooking pot over his head as a helmet. So, yeah, Mike is just, he's something else. He's a true artist. Like I said earlier, everyone has their own talents. Everyone has their own skills. And that's what comes through in a lot of the fan films. And let me just give a quick shout-out to my Star Car buddies, the guys where if you ever see a fan film or a project and we're driving around in a car, it ain't mine. I don't got that kind of money. So if you see us driving around in the Black Beauty and it's a Green Hornet Cato thing, I call myself non-Asian Cato. I mean, there's only one Bruce Lee. But we do our projects, and that's Tom Mitchell. Tom Mitchell restored, with a group of his friends, restored an original 66, the same exact car that the Green Hornet show showcased back in 66. Tom Mitchell's got that. If I need a Batmobile, John Brown. John Brown builds Batmobiles. He's built about six or seven of them. And they are, you couldn't tell a John Brown Batmobile from one from that George Barris built in the 60s. Brooklyn John, Brooklyn John, if I need a Munsters mobile, Brooklyn John has a dozen cars. Brooklyn John's the one that provided the Monkey Mobile. Stephen Bordy, if I need a Starsky and Hutch vehicle, Stephen Bordy actually owns one of the three remaining 1970s cars. And then you got Tom Police, Tommy D. Francesco. Tommy D. is like my wingman. We live about a mile apart from each other. He handles all the local adventures. Well, i got to ask so, you, you uh, just raised my curiosity with the Starsky and Hutch vehicle. Three or left, you're saying, of the original? That's what I've been told, because uh-huh. just like the Dukes of Hazard, they destroyed dozens and dozens of them as the show went on. Okay, because I remember previous, I'm going to say Eternal Con, where two of them were there. And I guess one was used once in the movie, let's say. The other one was actually used in a TV show. Maybe that's why and there were two in the same location. Yes, and he owns both. Stephen Bordy owns one of the three original 1970s TV show ones equipped with, like, the roll bar inside. I mean, it's just like a tank in there. Mm-hmm. And he also owns one from the Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson comedy. That was from 10, 12 years ago. Then you have others, people that own Torinos that they've had tricked out to make it look like them. All right, because I was saying, wait a minute, I have a neighbor right across the street who has one that looks like it, so... Yes, they are out there. Well, it's the same with Batmobiles. It's almost gotten to the point where I don't begrudge anyone owning a Batmobile, but they become common after a while. Mm. You almost want there to be the only 10 or 20 Batmobiles in the world. And that's another one I would be remiss if I didn't mention. If you've ever seen me with a prop, and it's a real prop, if you see me holding Don Adams' Get Smartphone, or you see any kind of a Gilligan shirt or this and that, we have someone who wishes to remain private. He calls himself Alfred the private collector, not Alfred the butler. Alfred the private collector, he is a friend of ours in New Jersey. He's actually just purchased land in central New Jersey, and he's going to build a New Jersey pop culture museum to house all of the artifacts that he has acquired over the past 20 years. And I'm talking original costumes from the Batman show. He loves Jackie Gleason. He's got Honeymooners artifacts that you, you just lose your mind. Barbara Eden's I Dream of Jeannie little skimpy outfit. He's got owns thousands and thousands of things. And he actually, the jewel in his arsenal is he owns one of the five original George Barris Batmobiles. The other four are all in private collections. You can't really see them. They've been auctioned off for a million, couple million. Alfred, the private collector, has the number number three, I think it is. And that was the touring one. That's the one when Adam West had to do a state fair in Texas, or he had to do a movie premiere, or he had to go here. This Batmobile has traveled the globe for 50-something years, and he owns it, and he allows us 
to use it for projects, which, as a Bat fan, I truly feel blessed. And I think that's going to be a huge hit because having uh, you know retired and packed up whatever the whole situation was, and I regret not being able to make it to, I guess it was Baltimore, for a Jeppies. Which that, was that? That was a, uh, a collectible museum. It was featured in at least one episode of Comic Book Men where the guys actually got to hold Action Comics number one. Wow. It was uh, Steve's first name. And, um, yeah, just I think it, it's in the Baltimore area. Right. That was there. And I only remember seeing it through uh, through that show and before that, a poster, a close-up of a lot of different things that it contained. And I don't know if it opened in 06, if it was approximately there that for some reason that year is ringing in my head that would be a great thing and to you know then to show everything off instead of having it in storage and stuff have it be out there to share with people who remember or see what it was like when it first started all that memorabilia stuff yeah that's a very rare breed and you're fortunate if you know someone that's like that because early on when we first met alfred the private collector he was on the fence about should he or shouldn't he eventually reveal this in a museum form and we all started our crew all started going to shows, and little by little, he saw the magic behind it. He has a, a medical background. This guy is, he is a medical genius. He is able to, from his hard work helping others, he has amassed a collection. Not only just the TV and movie memorabilia, he's got about two dozen star cars. Some are reproductions, some are originals, but this is someone that he didn't have to. He doesn't have to make this museum open to the public, but he's choosing to, so that's wonderful. Last thing I want to touch on, I think, Dave, seeing you a bunch of times recently on Facebook, different places you've been, and this time in a food aspect where it got to the point where I thought, he's trying to be like that diners, drive-ins, and dives, Guy Fieri type of thing. Well, I'll tell you what. If you recall, there was a TV show called Laughing. Remember Laughing? Oh, yeah. With Goldie Hawn and Ruth Buzzy, Artie Johnson. And it was all little six, seven-minute vignettes, almost like a prototype for uh, Saturday Night Live. And I always said, I would love to take that, have a superhero laugh in, right? Mm. I probably shouldn't say this out loud. I should probably copyright it first. I'd like to combine a superhero laugh in with food, cars, TV, a travel, so that it's all over the map. It's a little bit of everything. But the food segments that we do, that was all just another happy accident. I bumped into an old classmate. People think we're brothers. We're not. I have a brother. My brother looks nothing like me. <laughs> People think that Dave Strochak is my brother. We look exactly the same, same height, almost the same weight. And Dave works for the city of Elizabeth, which is the fourth biggest city in New Jersey. And Dave was doing tourism type stuff. And Dave said, listen, I love your videos and the Comic-Con stuff. Could you add a little razzle-dazzle to the food? We want to feature these mom-and-pop restaurants, you know. Pizzeria that's been around for 90 years. Italian ice stand that's been around since World War One. I'm like, yeah, sure. It was a summer, two summers ago. We go over there. I made him wear the Superman shirt. I always wear the Batman shirt. And we just did these three, four, five-minute videos. We meet the owners. We have something to eat. And then we're on our merry way. And then we might have a the Starskin Hutch car. My buddy uh, Tommy D, Tom D. Francesco, he provided us the Starskin Hutch car. So here we are driving around a city that's 100 years older than America. Elizabeth's old, and we're driving around in a Grand Torino, Sarsky and Hushmobile, having a hot dog or a slice of pizza. It's fun. It was a nice way to uh, introduce myself into a different audience. So it's like, oh, that's the that's superhero guy running around in tights. Nope. Now he's in a T-shirt and jeans, and you know he's having stromboli. So it's all good. We are grateful that we can see you when we see you on Facebook, Dave. And that leads me into pretty much the last thing is where can people find you on social media? 
Well, I'm kind of old-fashioned, so I have the Facebook page is David DeVenter. It's the old alias New Jersey Bat Dave, and that's basically my everyday stuff. I try to keep that a little uh, a little reserved, but then for the classic New Jersey Bat Squad stuff, the 87 fan films and all the photo albums, that's on Facebook on NJ Bat Squad Studios. That's just the link to everything. And then there's the YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel, as I mentioned when the show started, all one word, NJ Bat Squad. You've got the 87 original fan films. My very first fan film was another uh, happy accident. That's the third and last time I'll say that. Michael Uslin, executive producer of all the Batman movies. He owns the rights of Batman for movies since 1979. Took him 10 years to get Jack Nicholson and to get Michael Keaton for that movie to be made. Michael Uslin was down in Asbury Park, historic Asbury Park, Park Boardwalk, doing a book signing, The Boy Who Loved Batman. Yep. And I said to Denny, I said, Denny, let's just go down there and film some footage. So we go down there, we meet him, nice guy, we're chatting, bang, a nine-minute fan film about Michael Uslin. And actually, Michael wanted me to do an event for him last week, but we set this up three months ago mm-hmm. before the pandemic, before the lockdown. So uh, hopefully when this lifts, I'll be doing something with him again. When you put yourself out there, because you have to put yourself out there, this stuff just doesn't happen by accident. So when we do have this come back to you like that, it's nice. Yeah, when things are in alignment, it works. And with Michael, Peter and I did get to meet him and get his book as well at the December Big Apple Con. So, and again, like you said, nice guy. Got to listen to some of the presentation about, yes, how long it took and the whole thing with the Nicholson-Keaton-Batman movie. Really cool stuff. Yeah, and he's a Jersey boy. We talked about how some people didn't take to uh, the Adam West portrayal. Michael's not a huge fan of the TV show, and it was his life's dream to dirty up Batman, to make Batman more of a grim creature of the night. It took him a long time, but that's what he's done. You know, for better or worse, we've gotten a lot of uh, interesting Batman movies over the last 30 years. Well, speaking on behalf of The Marvelous, I'm glad that we got a hold of New Jersey Bat Dave. David DeVenter, thank you very much for your time. We wish you lots of continued success appearances, and we will get together again when all this lifts. I have one thing to say. Excelsior! It's a special edition of Obsessed with Marvel. New Jersey's Bat Dave, David DeVenter, sticking around, and thank you for doing this, because I really can't do this by myself. Hey, that's fine. I'm excited. I just hope that I... uh perform well well we shall see and just keep it to the questions as it were this is question number 576 and if you're not familiar they're all multiple choice so we'll go through this 576 reads under what circumstances did spider-man first meet the green goblin was it the goblin invited spider-man to star in a movie the goblin invited spider-man to be his partner in crime the goblin challenged spider-man to a public duel or Spider-Man found the Goblin robbing a bank. I'm going to say he tried to recruit him to join him. Partner in crime. Yes. And I can't for the life of me now. I mean, I guess it was relatively early that the Green Goblin was introduced in Spider-Man. You know, not within the first ten issues. I don't think. I think it may be a little bit, a little bit later. Right. But partner in crime. I thought about that from the first Tobey Maguire, and so they may have done it in uh, homage to that so you know what that sounds like a valid answer let's go with letter b and see what happens no that's not right the answer Uh, is invited spider-man to star in a movie oh that sounds ridiculous it does doesn't it but then again (laughs) you know when peter wanted to make extra money he was going to go in the ring and do all kind of stuff 
That's true. And it's funny because I've seen once in a while that costume of mostly red with some black highlights that he went in the ring with as somebody's cosplay. And I said, oh, that's original. That's really thinking a little bit past or out of the box, if you will. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Let's continue. I'm going to keep my stories to myself. The Flying Dutchman. I think that was the uh, character, at least in the movie that... Uh, and Bruce Campbell. Called. That was he was yes. a ref. Yes, that's right. Oh, that's terrible. All right, question number 423. Which superhero team has Spider-Man never joined? Choices are Defenders, Fantastic Four, Avengers, or New Warriors? Mm, I'm going to say New Warriors. Okay. Well, we know FF. Yeah, that's for sure. Avengers, yes, definitely. And I'm trying to remember when he was possibly a defender. But New Warrior sounds a little bit more like the possibility. I will go with that. It is correct. Okay. I remember the days when, of course, the what if, that was the very first what if. What if uh, Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four, correct? That's right. That was a real depressing issue, too. I think Sue ran off with Namor at the end of that one. Oof. Well, I remember, and I can't remember who we were talking to, but I remember talking about the premise of a lot of the what if stories being that they had to end, and in a lot of cases, somebody dies. Yeah. And there's no other way. I mean, yes, That's you can right. go, you, I get, you know, you can go back to now, more nowadays, maybe even than before, or throughout with Marvel, that nobody really dies except Uncle Ben. Stays, right. Stays, well, luckily, yeah. it was an imaginary tale. <sighs> okay. Let's go for one more, and maybe we can get two out of three. And that would be 1,792. What physical attributes... Did Hulk 2099 have that the original Hulk did not? Uh, scaled reptilian hide, retractable spikes of bone, hoofed feet, or all answers are correct. Hulk 2099. I'm going to say all answers are correct. I'm going to tell you what. When I've seen in, throughout this book, and I try to remember after the questions have been asked and, and if, if they ever come around again, if you've seen something like that, then typically it would be, yeah, all answers. I think, yeah, it's all that stuff. And it is correct. Okay, I'm happy. Yeah. Two out of three. And there we go. Thank you again, Dave. Hey, that was great.